chapter uh, 21 with the birth of Isaac we had finished I believe up right about first chapter 22 or chapter 20 last week in the life of Abraham and to briefly review just a few points we said that uh, Genesis is is not even an attempt to give us a detailed account of the history of man uh, it's it's attempt is to tell us that God created uh, how that the world got into this kind of condition and then the things that God did to prepare the world for the Messiah and so all the history of Genesis revolves around those select individuals that God was using and so we have uh, I don't believe that you would even read about uh, Cain except the fact he murdered Abel and then you read about Seth because Seth was given to replace Abel as being in the lineage of the Messiah and it says Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters but they don't talk about them because it centers on the one that was in the lineage and then we move on through and each of those specific names that a lot of attention is given to and, and concern we of course will eventually wind up seeing that these names were in the lineage of Jesus and then we <coughs> got to the point of Abraham where God now chooses an individual and makes a promise to him that uh, he's going to take his descendants and make a great nation from them and he's going to give him the land of Canaan and then all the earth is going to be blessed all families of the earth through his descendants and we noted that all of the rest of the Bible will revolve around those three promises and the same promise that God made to Abraham we're going to see it reiterated to Isaac and reiterated to Jacob and it'll just go on down and it'll be we'll see the the nation promise fulfilled we'll see the land promise fulfilled and then we'll watch Israel wait until the promise is fulfilled of the Messiah they <clears throat> didn't understand all the particulars of it about the Messiah but they at least knew that some great person was coming that had been promised now it's a very interesting thing in Genesis that we see all of these offshoot wrong things like Baal worship develops and Molech, Molech worship and all these other idolatrous things but as we look at the, the idolatrous worships that develop and do all through the Old Testament we see so a lot of similarities with the true worship in other words every single solitary religion has this concept of offering sacrifices to appease a God who's disturbed by what's going on here there is no religion known to mankind throughout all antiquity but there, there is this concept of offering a sacrifice to appease a creator who's very displeased with what is going on here and so we can see that although we have a have something that is false we can see the germ of truth that there's nothing original about any false thing and we see we can see that flow off and so <clears throat> what happens is that as truth is revealed God is going to use this select family and then that select nation to keep truth as it's revealed from God and preserve it in all mankind. But we're also going to find these truths scattered in various ways throughout all the various pagan religions and scattered throughout the earth. And for example, we noted when we covered the flood that if you read ancient history, every single solitary people that we read about in ancient history if you can take your history back far enough it goes back to a time of a great flood 
and a righteous man and his family being delivered, and then the earth being populated. And again, I believe an impossibility, except you have a central source, and then man takes that. But what is true there is true with these other things. The concept of a Messiah, a great righteous king that was coming to this earth, was known not just among the Jews, but it was carried. And when we read in the Oriental writings, in fact, Adam Clark does a real good job in his commentary of pointing out that, that even Confucius had this understanding of this great person that was supposed to arise in the West. And that in the Oriental countries, there was, they didn't, they, you know, it, it's been cluttered in various ways, but there was this concept of this great Messiah that was going to arise uh, from, from the West. Uh, remember the, uh, uh, the, what we refer to as the three uh, Magi, the ones that come to Jesus. Of course, it doesn't three, but it doesn't specifically say three, but because of what was given there in gifts, we come up with three. But anyway, they were not Jews. Uh, they were people from the East that were astrologers and studying the stars, but they had this concept in their mind of a Messiah to come. Well, again, what happened is that as God gave this promise and set out to fulfill it and all, as people broke off and as they left God and as they scattered throughout the world, every place man went, he took this concept with him. And in some ways now, this will be a help. When Christianity finally comes on the scene, although they don't have, obviously they've got a perverted truth, but there was enough truth in the perverted truths that they had that it actually helped them so far as understanding Christianity. It's like a study with maybe today a, a Muslim who rejects Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. But that Muslim, because of his belief in God and his belief in the Old Testament Scriptures and his belief in a lot of the New Testament and his recognition of Jesus as a prophet, already has enough truths in his mind that you start out on a far better foundation talking with him than you would an atheist that you're going to have to sit down and spend a lot of time reasoning with just about the existence of God. You don't have to do it uh, with the Muslim. Well, this is the same way that when Christianity comes on the scene, the pagan religions have enough kernels of truth, even in a perverted way, that it's going to make it easier for them to see uh, the other when it comes on the scene and is explained to them. <coughs> In chapter 21, we deal with the birth of Isaac. Uh, Sarah, verse 2, becomes pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time that God had promised him. And Abraham gave him the name Isaac. Uh, if you look down, if you read the New International down at the bottom where it gives the meaning, the word Isaac means he laughs. And the name was given because of the laughter that took place when Sarah was told that uh, she was going to, going to have a child in her old age. Uh, Abraham was, a, verse 5, 100 years old when Isaac was born to him. Okay, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. Uh, there's a little jealousy there uh, in the situation between uh, Sarah and Ishmael and Hagar, the mother. But anyway, God lets Abraham know that he's also going to make a great uh, uh, nation out of Ishmael. And the Arabs, to this day, because uh, we know what's going over in, in Israel today, but the Arabs trace their lineage back to Ishmael. And see, they argue that Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. And they differ then. They say some of these things that centered around Isaac was the interpretation of these people. And it's really not accurate. 
that the, the lineage really belonged to Ishmael. And they look on themselves as the people of God in the same way that the Jews look on themselves. That's why they, they're not going to settle a whole lot over there because each side not only believes he's right, but he believes he's right as a result of the religious convictions he has. But they go back here and, and show that Ishmael was the firstborn, and that's the way that it should have been from the very, from the very first. Okay, uh, by the way, uh, if you don't already know it, and since I mentioned the Muslims, that uh, the way they get Mohammed in the picture, see, they accept Jesus as a great prophet. But when Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, the comforter that was to come, they have their own translation of those of that phrase, and they show that they believe Jesus there was speaking of Muhammad. And so that it was not the Holy Spirit in the sense you read about it, but it was actually Muhammad that he was pointing the way towards, according, I mean, according to Muslim theology. Uh, in the 22nd chapter, Abraham is uh, tested. He's asked to do something that is beyond his logic and, and his reasoning. Uh, he's after, asked to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Uh, this is unheard of in the worship of God, and yet it was something that was common uh, among the pagans. And we see something here in the faith of, of Abraham. Uh, let's see, uh, read that uh, verse 9 unto verse 12. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in so what, Are you reading verse 9 on chapter 22? I'm on 21. Oh, okay. Yeah, 9 through 12 on 22. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Okay, look at that. When we have that, turn over to Hold your place there. And flip over to Hebrews 11 and 17 through 19. Okay, Mark, would you read that, please? 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Okay, notice there that as we read over here, there's no comment here. The comment comes from the Hebrew writer. But... Uh, Notice that uh, Abraham didn't know what God was going to do. He honestly thought he was going to take the life of Isaac. But then, where his faith came in, he knew that God had made a promise that he, that he was going to be blessed through his seed. And he couldn't fulfill that promise with Isaac dead. And so he reasoned that the only way God could fulfill that promise is to raise him from the dead. And so he had so much confidence in God that he believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. So strong that he would have taken his life. Now, the interesting thing to me, where the parallel comes in here, is that uh, 
to a man that believed God so strongly that he would have killed his only son, believing that God was going to raise him up. To that man, <clears throat> God really enumerated on the promises of the, of the Messiah to come. And that eventually, uh, individuals would be saved by God who did give his only son and then raise him from the dead. Uh, but interesting there that, in, that what God did was the perfect uh, thing and, and, the, and the real act and all, but Abraham was willing to do the same thing. He was willing to, to give it, and, and this is put forth all through the Bible, Old and New Testament, as the example of faith. That uh, There's more to faith, and I think, uh, again, when we talk about obedience like we just were, and the fact that uh, you're saved by grace through faith and, and not uh, saved by law-keeping or earning your way, but we see something here that a true saving faith has more to it than just intellectual belief. And he, his trust in God led him to go ahead and obey God and, and to do it to the, full, to the fullest extent. And I hope, too, that anybody that reads this as a Christian would have to examine themselves and, and look at it from the standpoint, if I understand what is happening here and what's required of us, when he says to us in the New Testament, uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you, then he literally is making a statement to you that if in your decisions in life that God comes first and his kingdom comes first, that you're not going to have to worry. In other words, we're not going to have to fudge and, and, and not do something that would be right for God because we think that we're going to miss out on some of the necessities of life. I mean, that is a promise of God. And another thing you can see on that is how much worry would literally be done away with. You know, if people actually believe that as Christians, that if you put God first, and seek him above anything and everything else, uh, he makes the promise that, that, you know, that you're not going to lack on the essentials of life. All right, another promise, in Romans 8:28, it says, God causes everything to work together for good for those that love the Lord. And whom he foreknow, he also predestined, whom he predestined, he also called, whom he called, he also justified. If God be with you, who can be against you? And so then that's a plain statement that God has perfect foreknowledge, and God has already predetermined in his mind to work things out for the spiritual good and eternal destiny of those individuals that he knows will love him. And so you can see how that that's going to totally change anybody's life. They talk about lives being changed in some mystical way. If you believe those two statements without any reservation, that's going to totally change your life. If you honestly believe that God causes things to work together for the good of those that love him, and that if you seek him and his kingdom first, that, uh, you know, you're not going to lie for the, the essentials and all of life. And I, Abraham, a good example that you and I, again, and maybe putting ourselves in a similar boat with Abraham, Abraham didn't know how God was going to fulfill this. He just knew he was going to do it. Well, when it says God causes all things to work together for our good, we can tell that in the context that it's spiritual because you read that neither, the very next statement is that neither death nor suffering, nor etc., nor central and persecution, so separates from the love of God. So while God's causing things to work together for your good, you could obviously have a lot of bad things happen to you in the physical sense. So obviously, he's talking about the spiritual sense. But to me, that again, you and I may not understand perfectly how the angels do their job in the realm of providence, but we can look at this with the same confidence that Abraham had, and although I don't understand perfectly how they 
do their job and what they're going to do and what they're not going to do, that doesn't negate the fact that they're going to do it. And trust in God is shown in the fact that you understand and know that he's going to carry out every, everything that he says. Come on over to verse 17. Uh, Nancy, would you read that please? 17 and 18. <coughs> I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Okay, notice those three promises in that simple statement. The... Make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Promise one. Make a great nation from him. And then your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And that's promise two. The land, the land was going to be given to them. And then through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the fact that everybody would eventually be blessed through his offspring. But those three promises stated in various ways will follow all the way through here. Okay, the... Next part here in the latter part of verse 22, chapter 22, there's mention of uh, Nahor, Nahor, the brother of uh, Abraham, and that uh, he is the, uh, let's see, the firstborn, the father of Abram, and let's see, Bethuel is his son, and Bethuel became the father of Rebekah, and of course that, uh, we're going to see then how Isaac winds up marrying Rebecca, which would make her, what would that be, his first cousin? That uh, it's Abraham's brother's son, daughter. So it would be first, it would be second cousin, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Second cousin. And so just as Abraham had married Sarah, which was uh, actually really a half-sister to him, and then he would wind up marrying one that was a, a second cousin. Okay, Sarah, chapter 23, lived to be 127 years old. And then Abraham negotiates a burying place among the Hittites. And as you read that little discourse there, it's interesting. Lamsa has some very good comments on that and said that everything that happens here is in perfect keeping with their customs. How that, uh, remember, they want to just give the land to him. He didn't want to take it. And then very casually, uh, look at verse 12, or 13. He said to Ephraim in the hearing, listen to me, if you will, I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me. And then in 14, Ephraim answered, Abraham, listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Very that Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms. And so on the one hand, it's like he just casually mentioned that. And then it is that mentioned that Abraham agreed to his terms. And he bought the land. I thought it was uh, interesting. And reading Lambs, uh, he said that uh, this is exactly the way that those people bargain to this present day. That uh, they put a they put a preeminence on courtesy. And so that if you tell somebody you'd like to buy something from him, he'll say no. He'll give it to you. But really, it's understood that you're going to buy it. And he said they'll go back and forth. No, I want to buy it. No, you know that we're, I want to give it to you. And then, somewhere in all of that, you're supposed, you find out the value of it. And then you go ahead and you bow and you, he's let you know exactly what it's worth and you give. So you've bought it. And so you own it. He didn't give you anything. But by the same token, he and all his courtesy and everything has offered to give it to you and even argued with you on the price before you give it to him. So each party walks away happy. 
and, and he said that they they put tremendous emphasis on courteous and for them to buy and sell in the point blank way that we do they would consider very rude and, and discourteous but uh, he said that it, it was interesting that you could still in that part of the country hear those same types of conversations all right and interesting also when you read uh, the archaeological material from this time that what happens here isn't uh, and what Lamsa says on it is in perfect harmony with what they reveal all right now what does that mean to us it means obviously <coughs> the person that wrote this had first-hand experience with the information he was dealing you just don't sit down several hundred years later and write accurately pertaining to the customs and the practices of every little insignificant thing. It's like a, a good example when Abraham went into Hagar and had Ishmael by her. And then we go back and read from archaeology that uh, this was a custom of that, of that day, that uh, if your wife was barren and you was wealthy enough that you had servants, then you had relations with the servant, and that first child actually belonged to you and your wife. And so again, something that would almost be repulsive to us it was in perfect harmony with their custom art. Right, now this little thing we just pointed out here, but you can do this all through the Bible. That whatever you're reading, the the particular custom, uh, the the culture, the the language, uh, the type of reasoning that takes place, is in perfect harmony with that which we dig up from archaeology. You know, going back to that time, uh, just like even the the poetic. We talk about idioms like that. Lamson brought out that that when we read those beautiful poetic metaphors in Isaiah uh, in other prophets, especially Isaiah, they were not unique to Isaiah. It, it was the language of that day, and he didn't say anything that was absolutely brand new to him. It was the language, and they perfectly related, and so when we go back and we read other documents and other materials from that time, we read exactly that, that same kind of language. Okay, Abraham agrees to his uh, terms, weighs out for him the amount of money that he had named. Okay, chapter 24, <coughs> Abraham is now old, and he's advanced in years. The Lord had blessed him in every way. And that's an important statement when you think. Remember that God initially told him to leave this family and go out into a land that he didn't know anything about. And he just obeyed God. And yet he was prosperous everywhere that he went. All right, he, here we see another characteristic of of Abraham, it's, it's time for Isaac to marry, and he's very concerned about the wife of Isaac. Uh, let's see, uh, Jack, would you read that please in uh, three and let's see, chapter two through four. Verse two. Yeah, verses two through four. Pardon. He said to the chief servant <coughs> in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, "Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord." the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Okay, notice how, how strong he was in wanting Isaac. And the only thing wrong with the Canaanites is their idolatry. But how strong he was in wanting Isaac to have the right kind of wife. I honestly believe that as Christians... I'm, and I'm looking at Christianity uh, among all of us who believe in Jesus and respect his person the Bible. I, I really believe that we make a mistake in not putting more emphasis on that, you know, in our young, how important that is to marry a, a believer. Uh, even when people marry with the idea of converting their mate, 
Well, first of all, statistics will show that although that happens, it doesn't happen as often as they fail. Most of the time, they, they fail. And uh, in fact, uh, I know in, in Nashville, among Churches of Christ, that a fellow by the name of Baxter had kept up with that for a number of years and did a research paper on it. And he said of every seven Christians that married uh, a non-Christian, and he's not talking about somebody in another group, so he's just talking about somebody that is not a practicing Christian, that four of them fell by the wayside, never to return again. They just literally fell out, and that all their record was that they never never returned. But four out of seven just simply fell by the wayside. And he said of those other, of the three that remained in, one in seven wound up actually converting their mate. One in, one in seven actually, and so that on a 49 basis, seven out of 49 actually reached their mate, which would make that, what, about uh, 14%. About that actually, and he says that the reason we think it's more successful than it is is because the only one we're in tune with are those that stay in the church and reach their mate, and says we've long forgot the ones that married and, and left the church. But I think that uh, that that it is something that he went to great effort, and I think when our children are young, that we ought to just literally harp on it. Of the that everybody has criteria. There's nobody just goes out here with no criteria whatsoever. And you ought to make number one on your list that that person is a, a strong believer in God. It'll be num number one on the list itself. And Abraham was very concerned. And again, remember one of the reasons uh, that God chose Abraham, hold your place there, and flip on back to, I believe it's 18, chapter 18, and uh, yeah, in verse 19. I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and keep his household after him to keep doing the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised him. Uh, God could not have fulfilled what he wanted to through Abraham if Abraham were not the type of person that was so concerned about his family and was willing to teach his children and do what, what is right there. And so he did, and, and of course, that we're going to keep this thing going generations on down the pike as a result of it. Uh, and look, come on down to uh, verse 7, right at the latter part of the verse. And no, pardon me, notice this promise again. To your offspring, I will give this land, and he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son, of my, my son from there. And so again, this promise reiterated, reiterated that the land itself was going to his, his offspring. Okay, come on over. And what happens now through the 24th chapter is that uh, his servant goes down. He winds up picking Rebecca. And uh, in verse 29 of chapter 24, you see that Rebecca's brother was named Laban. And they were the children of Bethuel, who was the son of Nahor the brother of Abraham. Look at verse 40. The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and make your journey a success. If you notice going through here, this is mentioned any number of times about the angel going before them to either protect them or to make their journey a success. But it, in fact, it would be interesting just to go through there. Look at uh, uh, back over here at 24 and verse uh, 7. To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. Uh, let's see. I found another one real quick. 
uh, in verse 17 of chapter 21, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar. I've already put past it. Huh? And then, of course, back in the 18th chapter, the three angels that come, and then, of course, the destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. But all the way through here, when God is dealing, we constantly will see the angels. In Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, the angels are referred to as ministering spirits that minister to those that will inherit salvation. Okay, chapter 25, <coughs> we have the uh, death of uh, Abraham, and notice also that the Midian, Midianites will come from the lineage of Abraham. It says in verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him, among others, Midian. Okay, and then it names down here in verse 4, the sons of Midian. Remember that... Uh, Moses, when he leaves Egypt, fleeing from Pharaoh, will go into the land of the Midianites, and that he will marry a daughter of a, a priest of the Midianites. And again, when Moses uh, leads the Israelites out, his father-in-law will actually come and visit with him and give him some suggestions in being a priest of God that Moses will actually put into practice. And so that although Moses was running and leaving Egypt, when he married one of the Midianites, you actually have a tie there to the lineage of Abraham, and you may have had the worship perverted in some ways, but obviously her father was a priest, and, and there was a whole lot of truths and understandings that they had concerning the true God. Okay, in verse 7, Abraham lived 175 years, and he breathed his last, and he died, and he was gathered to his people. It's interesting how many times this is used in the Old Testament in referring to death, that the person was gathered to their people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of, you can pronounce that as well as I can. I'm having trouble talking anyway. Look at verse 12. Remember, we identified uh, this to start with. Uh, this is the account of Abraham's son, Ishmael. That uh, this is, uh, Genesis is being put together from tablets and the breaks were 2, 4, 5, 1, 6, 9, 10, 1, 11, 10, 11, 25, 11, 27, 25, 12, 25, 19. Let's see where we're at here. We're at 25, 12. All right, we should have another one at 25, 19. And then in the 36, we'll hit another one. But it says, this is the account of Abraham's son Ishmael. And then come over here to 25, uh, 19. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. And so what Moses has here is two tablets one belonging to Ishmael and one belonging to Isaac that he's taking his information from to put this together. Okay, next it gets into the birth of Jacob and Esau. Uh, this is verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. And then we're going to get into uh, the birth of Jacob and Esau. The mention there, look at verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will, within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. So again, the foreknowledge, absolute, perfect foreknowledge of God. And of course, Jacob and Esau, 
from Esau will come Edom and the Edomites, and then of course from Jacob will come the Israelites. And one will be greater than the other, and then one, the older, will wind up actually serving the young, younger, and perfect fulfillment of it. And again, put yourself in the position of Moses, who is uh, writing this, and the people who are alive, because keep in mind that their faith had to be kindled all the time. And as these promises were given, and as they were perfectly fulfilled, well, they had these accounts, and that just simply kept that promise alive in their mind and, and kept them convinced that this, this message they had was one that was from God. And all the way through this, we've noticed in the Old Testament that their faith in this Messiah is kept alive by these promises that are continually fulfilled. And as they were fulfilled in their lifetime, then this promise about somebody to come in the long range, that's what actually caused their, their faith in that, in that person. In fact, later on, we'll get to Isaiah, and he makes the statement, former things have I declared, new things do I declare to you before they spring forth. I tell you of them. And he bases your faith that he wants you to have in this long range that's out here in the future on the other things that have already come to pass and, and been fulfilled. <coughs> okay, the little development there of Esau and Jacob, uh, the type person. Another thing we can see in uh, God's choosing them, uh, it's obvious why God chose Jacob. He was not a perfect person by any stretch there, of the imagination. There is no perfect individual. But he's obviously a more spiritual person than Esau was. And so he was the better of the two spiritually. And so God had, had chosen him. Okay, come on down to uh, uh, <clears throat> chapter 26. And let's look at it again. The same promise. Uh, Barbara, read this. In, uh, here is uh, in 26. Isaac goes to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. The Lord appears to Isaac. And then notice the statement he makes. Read verses 4 through 6. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. And again, notice how everything centers around that promise. I'll make your descendants, same promise he's made to Abraham, makes to Isaac. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. That's the nation promise. Then I'll give them all these lands, and then all nations of the earth would be blessed because Abraham obeyed me. So the three promises given to Abraham on several occasions, now after uh, uh, Abraham's death, Isaac is the chosen one, and then these promises made, made to Isaac, and he will carry these on down. <clears throat> okay, and keep in mind, as you read that also, that later on Moses, in the land of Egypt, being brought up in the house of Pharaoh, with his own mother educating him and all, Moses had access to this material, and he was fully cognizant of, of this promise of the nation, and he could look out there and see a nation that was being formed, and, and of the fact that the land had been promised, and it actually became a motivating factor in Moses coming to identify himself as the deliverer and finding it hard to understand when, he, when his fellow Israelites you know, didn't, didn't see that, but he had this material to study. Okay, uh, uh, verse 34, uh, information about Esau. When Esau was 40 years old, 
he married Judith, the daughter of Mary the Hittite, and also Basmuth or Basmuth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau marries among the people of the land, and it becomes a constant source of sorrow and grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, Isaac is old. His eyes are weak. Uh, we know what happened there that when Rebekah uh, talks to Jacob and encourages him to deceive Isaac, and Isaac, thinking he's blessing Esau, will actually bless Jacob in the process. Come on over to verse 41 of that chapter 27. <coughs> uh, Mark, read that 41 and then 46 through uh, 28. 1. Okay. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. In verse 46, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac <coughs> called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Okay, so uh, he's going to be sent down. Of course, we know the deception that's taken place. Interesting thing happens. Jacob does this on his own. But yet God uses it. He's still the better of the two, the more spiritual of the two. And even it's interesting to watch that even with the mistakes that people are making of their own free will, how that God is going to work this thing out and, and get it the way that he actually wants it, even even with them making the mistakes. And so he'll send him on down. Uh, the concern there is that he does not marry a Canaanite woman, but will, be mar will marry from their own people and believers in the true God. Okay, come on over to... Uh, uh, chapter 12, I mean, no, not chapter 12, 28, and we have Jacob's dream. Now, remember this promise again. We said the whole Bible revolving around this promise. Uh, Nancy, start at verse 12, and then read that on down through verse 15. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and, you will, watch and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Okay, now there again, here we saw it with Abraham, we saw it with Isaac, now here we are with Jacob, and God appears to him, and look at the three promises there, that uh, I will give you and your descendants the land, verse 13, and verse 14, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, so the land, the nation, and then the latter part of that 14th verse, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. All right, now, when you read this, it helps you to appreciate even something else. Remember that here is God who very strongly has made these promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob of the land, the nation, and then the Messiah to come so that all people of the earth were going to be blessed. Well, then, remember when God speaks to Moses 
Here's Moses has been educated by his own mother in the household of Pharaoh. Well, notice how God inter, uh, introduces himself, that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's no accident. Uh, Moses has been taught all of this. Uh, he's had access to the material. Uh, I can't imagine that doing anything but turning on all kinds of bells in, in the mind of Moses because the Jew carried with them that great promise. In fact, to show you how strong they carried it with them, Remember that before Moses, that when Jacob died, uh, he made a promise that they would carry his bones and bury him in the land of Canaan. And they were firmly fixed in the land of Goshen and very prosperous and had no thought whatsoever of returning at that time. And yet he, he wanted them to promise. In fact, remember that, uh, that uh, he, when Jacob died, uh, Joseph refused to bury him in Egypt. And they went into Canaan and buried him. And then when it got time for Joseph to die, and he made them promise that they would, and later on in the New Testament, Joseph is complimented for that. Because although he died in Egypt, he was absolutely positive that they were going to the land of Canaan and had made them promise to carry his bones. Now, in doing this, we also see something of their misunderstanding. They, uh, the Jew definitely was looking for a bodily resurrection. And they thought God needed those bones. And so it was very important to them. That's why they, uh, the body, that they did everything they could to preserve it and keep it from deteriorating. And they honestly thought they were helping God out. And so when he said carry his bones, he knew his body would be totally deteriorated. But he was going to help God out in the resurrection by carrying those bones. And he didn't want to be raised up down in Egypt either. He wanted it in the land of Canaan. But they definitely had that concept of the uh, physical uh, resurrection and that their bones would actually be used by God in the resurrection itself. But again we can see how that everything is revolving around this particular promise of the land, the nation, and the Messiah and it's going to go all the way through the Bible. I mean literally the whole Bible is going to, going to revolve around these three promises. Okay uh, in chapter 29 uh, let's see uh, look at uh, the latter part of chapter 28 Verse 20. <coughs> uh, Jack, would you read that 20 through 22, please? Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and I will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillow will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Okay, now, what we have here is the really, I believe, the conversion of Jacob. Uh, Jacob has left due to his parents telling him to go and to pick a wife and all. And he knows about this promise that's been made to Abraham and, his, and Isaac, his father. But he just knows from their testimony. Now, God appears to Jacob. And the same promise that Jacob has heard his grandfather and his dad give has been given to him. And so, Jacob embraces that. And then he makes a vow in verse 20. and says that, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey that I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes. In other words, God has promised him his providential care, and that he's going to return safely to his father's house. And he said, this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And so he promised, and we also see 
this concept of, a, of giving a tenth uh, that it belongs to God. Remember, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And then later on, we get the law of Moses. You know, the tithe was commanded. And it's interesting, when you go back and study pagan religions, all of them have this concept of giving a tithe or a tenth is belonging to, it, to God. And this will come right through the Jews all, all through their history. But again, we see it not only here, but we see it in all pagan religions. And every, in fact, every religion that we can even read about, they have this concept of, of a tithe, a tenth of whatever they have, as belonging to God. Okay, Jacob goes, continues on, uh, goes down, he meets uh, Rachel, and of course we know the story there, and his uh, love for Rachel and desire to marry her. And then we know that uh, when the marriage ceremony actually took place, he was deceived, and he wound up marrying Lee. And we say, how in the world could that happen? And yet, when we look at the text, and uh, and then go back and look at the customs of that day, at the time he married her, she not only was fully clothed, but had her face covered. And this was in keeping with the customs of that day. And so he, he really didn't know. He felt that he, he was married Lee. In verse 26 of chapter 29, <clears throat> Laban replied, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Okay, was their custom to marry the older first and a man simply did not want to marry uh, the, the daughter, the younger daughter before the older. And so there's no big thing to Laban. But again we see something that something happens that you and I would have a hard time accepting. He goes ahead and takes both of them. And before he's through he's going to have four. But really as we look at the story Jacob didn't want but one. Uh, so far as his own heart was concerned. The only one he ever wanted was racial. And the customs of that day put him in a situation where he wound up with four. So that means that the only one he ever really wanted was, was racial. <coughs> okay, the next mention in the beginning with 31, he simply talks about the children that's born to the four, uh, the, uh, the ones that Lee gives birth to, and then her handmaid, and then the handmaid of uh, racial, and then finally racial until we have the 12 sons and a daughter that is, is born to him. All right, in the next, in the remaining part of the 30th and the uh, 31st chapter, we have the situation where he works seven years for Lee, he works seven years for Rachel, then he works another six years. Laban changes his wages a number of times. He finally makes an agreement with uh, Laban that that all the stock that are speckled or striped would belong to him and the unblemished would belong to Laban. And then we see that uh, it's worked out in the providence of God that uh, the flock simply becomes all speckled and striped and, and he winds up with uh, Laban's flock. Laban is disturbed, wants to take his life, and then God appears to him and, and intervenes. Uh, by the way, what you read in there about Jacob getting the reeds and them breeding in front of the reeds and all, <clears throat> I don't believe that had anything to do with, with I think the flock was given to Jacob by God, and that'll, that'll come out a few chapters later. But uh, Jacob, again, what he did there tied in with some beliefs uh, in their customs of that day, just like uh, some of the older people around here that have beliefs like that, uh, I can't remember what kind of stick it was, but when Angie was little, she had, uh, <clears throat> it looked like she was going to have asthma. 
And I remember Barbara's daddy telling me if we cut a certain type of limb off, the same, uh, a certain height, and put it in a closet, when she reached the point where she outgrew that limb, then she wouldn't have asthma anymore. Well, that's an old, <coughs> old thing. Uh, Mitchell, for years, slept with a chihuahua because he believed that that chihuahua would take his asthma. Well, it's not so. You know, it's, a, it's a, again, a folk tale and all that's, that's believed. Well, in the same way, what Jacob actually does here was in keeping with the customs and all of that day. Now, what literally happened is God did give the flock and all to Jacob. Uh, but Jacob, uh, like Abraham with his marriage to Hagar and all, uh, or his relationship, I should say, he thought he was going to help the situation out. Well, he really didn't, I don't believe at all. But still, you can go back and read concerning the customs of that day. And what he did was in harmony with the things that were believed at that particular time. So we see that these people, on the one hand, they had revelation from God pertaining to the important things of faith in God, the Messiah to come, and godliness of life. But man, they, uh, God, even then, God wasn't just in them guiding them every step of the way. They had free will and they made a number of mistakes because they got led astray by the customs and the various beliefs of the people of that day. <coughs> okay, in the 32nd chapter, uh, Jacob is uh, preparing to meet Esau now. Uh, notice again, the angels, verse 1, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him and uh, Jacob is scared. Uh, an angel, uh, is, I believe what happens in starting with verse 22, where Jacob wrestled with an angel of God, I believe personally that took place in a vision. I believe he literally uh, did it. I believe the, all the communication was uh, in a vision process. Verse 22, that night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his maid servants, his eleven sons, crossed the ford. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him to daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So the hip was wrenched, and he wrestled with the man. And the man said, Let me go for his daybreak. Uh, verse 28. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and men and have overcome. And then look at verse 30. Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Hold your place there. Flip over to Hosea 12, <coughs> verses 2 through 5. You said, who read last? Mm -hmm. I did. You did? Jack, would you read it, please? Uh, verses 2 through 5. In 12... Right. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according <coughs> to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he grasped his brother's heel. As a man he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found, found him at Bethel and talked with him there. Okay, now, flip on back here to 32, where <clears throat> Jacob said that he saw God uh, face to face <coughs> and then struggled with God. But yet, we, we look at the context there, 
and it was the admissions about a man wrestling with him and all. And Hosea, when he comments on it, said he literally wrestled with an angel. And what we find, we find this happening over and over, that the angel was a messenger from God. And you'll find it used interchangeably. If something God or whatever angel, like for example, you'll read that God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, but then when we read the context, we find it's really an angel of God that, that spoke to him. And we're going to see this all the way through here. I don't believe Jacob did not wrestle literally with God, but I believe an angel appeared to him, and he wrestled with the angel. And then, of course, the angel was a representative of God, and we have that kind of statement being made. Uh, the same thing is true with, uh, uh, we'll, later on, it'll go back and forth several times on God speaking to Moses or the angel, you know, from the burning bush. Uh, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus will interchangeably refer to the law of Moses as the law of God or the law of the Lord and the law of Moses. It was the law of the Lord through Moses. And so the angel represented God. And so you could phrase it either way and be accurate so far as the writer of the Bible is concerned. Okay, Jacob meets Esau in chapter 33. Uh, Esau receives him, uh, embraces him. Uh, the hard feelings uh, seem, seem to be over. Esau has been prospered himself along with Jacob. Jacob gives him a lot of gifts. And you can see going through here how uh, coy that Jacob was in, in trying to uh, rectify the wrong with Esau and to set it up and cha change the feelings. In the 34th chapter, we have the situation where Dinah is raped by Shechem and how that her, Shechem loved Dinah, wanted to marry her. Uh, her brothers deceived the people of the land, persuaded them that they would intermarry with them and all, that they would circumcise themselves like the, like the Israelites were. They did circumcise themselves, and then Simeon and Levi, verse 25, went in with a sword and, and took the lives of, of the people in that, in that village. When it says they were still sore as a result of the circumcision that had just taken place. <coughs> Uh, Jacob is concerned uh, about this, uh, but they still pull Dinah out. Uh, a little mention will be made later on. Remember, it'll be the tribe of Levi that will be used and not given a land grant, but will be scattered among the other tribes. And whenever this happens, Jacob will refer back to this thing with Simeon and, and Levi, and their anger at this, at this particular time. Okay, look at chapter 35, and look at, uh, as Jacob has taken his household out of Laban, we can see that what a hard task it was of ridding even his own household and all of, of various things dealing with idolatry and fully acknowledging the true spiritual God. In verse 2, Jacob said to his household and all that were with him, get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you, purify yourselves. Change your clothes, then come let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they gave Jacob all their foreign gods that they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Remember how that uh, Rachel, when she left Laman, had stole the household gods? Well, again, in going back and looking at uh, archaeology and, and the discoveries made there, the inheritance 
was tied to the household gods. Whoever was given the household god, then this is the one that they were saying that the inheritance belonged to. And so there may have been a little more there than just, uh, uh, you know, her car carrying off one of their little idol gods. But we could also see in this that uh, although the, that Jacob was walking with God, that these people lived in a world of idolatry, and they didn't come out of it overnight. And it's just like the Israelites when they're laid out of the land of Egypt. The first thing they do is build a golden calf, you know, that they, like they had down in Egypt. And so they still have these gods, and Jacob is reasoning with them at this point. Uh, in the 35th chapter 9 and 10, God changes his name to Israel, uh, a, a word that literally means striven with God. And then again, in verse 11, uh, middle of the verse, a nation and a community of nations will come from you. Kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. So again, going back to the promise, and uh, again, uh, doing what we said would happen, that all of this material revolves around that promise. Okay, Rachel dies while giving birth to Benjamin. Uh, and then it comes on down and tells you the length of Isaac and the fact that he died. And then look at 36.1. This is the account of Esau, that is Edom. In other words, again, Moses is letting you know that this particular account is the one that belonged to Esau. Well, then look at the next one. Come on over to uh, uh, 37.2. This is the account of Jacob. And so he tells you that this, here you've got Jacob and Esau, the two brothers, and he tells you this body of material that you've just been reading, that, that first it was taken from uh, Esau's account, and then he comes along and tells you that this is the account of Jacob, Jacob himself here. And by the way, that's interesting that uh, in the book on the Genesis uh, record and dealing with the manuscripts uh, on that we, that we talked about you know, first on the introduction of the book, Again, leaving this and going back to archaeology, that exactly what we have here in Genesis is what we find in their records. In other words, when they keep their records, they just simply put it together with no big mention like we would of the author at the beginning or anything like that. But material is simply given, and then the material, after the end of that particular material, they tell you who it's the count of and really the, the tablet of, and they just simply piece it together. In other words, when Moses put this together this way, and then added the part that he was an eyewitness of, uh, he again wasn't doing anything unique. Uh, he was doing exactly what would have been the custom of the scribes and the historians of, of that particular day. Okay, let's pause there with that uh, 37th chapter, and <coughs> next week we'll start there with uh, Joseph, we'll get into Joseph, and then I think that we'll be able to go ahead and, and finish up through the 50th, 50th chapter next week. Anybody have any comments or questions? <clears throat> On this, uh, the scriptures that you say, says this is the account of Esau, uh, most of what precedes that is talking about Jacob. Right. And then the part that says, uh, 37.2, says this account of Jacob will depart from 36 through, well, this be just chapter 36, while it's talking about Esau's family and his descendants. So did, did Esau write about Jacob? And yeah, Jacob and then you have uh, Jacob, 
writing. And not only that, see what happens after verse 2 there is really Joseph uh, from this, this point on. So when it says this is the account of Jacob, looks means back. this is what Jacob wrote, right. not about Jacob. Right. Okay. right, it's his account okay. that he has. That's and it may have, in other words, it whether he was his scribe that wrote it or what, but that was his account that he okay. owned. And it said that uh, he brought out in the book that uh, that when you read that it's a count, it could mean that he wrote it, it could mean that he was just the owner of it. And it said the, the most important thing to them, they didn't look on um, authorship in the same way that we do. In fact, like when we write anything, we give a bibliography and we give every little quote and everything like that. They didn't. Uh, they would quote without giving any credit whatsoever. And the and when you read the at the end of the tablet, the most what that was really letting you know is who owned that tablet. He may have written it or he may not have written it, but it is letting you know he, he at least agreed with it and it was his and he owned and he owned that tablet. Well, it seems kind of funny to me that, that this, uh, like in thirty six, verse one it says this is the account of Esau. Well, this, all the material preceding that that was owned by him or written by him. Is dealing with Jacob. I mean, and yeah, but in, in, in his deception and his father. All right, but then right here, like in uh, the part where it says it's account of Jacob, he said Esau took his wives. In other words, look into the third right. person, and you're saying Esau took his wives. Okay. Now I guess it would make sense for him to write. Uh, you know, and keep in mind family. also that uh, how much more there was that you and I can only speculate. It's sort of like when Luke puts his material together and tells you that he has all these accounts and the eyewitness and all. Uh, scholars uh, for years thought that maybe that Luke debated as to whether Luke had and Luke and Matthew had access to Mark. You know, but well, we can only guess really at how much of the materials now they believe that Mark, Luke, and Matthew all had access to a source that they call Q along with other sources and everything like that, you know, because of the similarities and all. But again, we can only get back and speculate at all they was working with, you know, before they put the material down. And the same thing with Moses, that uh, uh, we can only guess at all that he was actually working with before he convinced it in the form that we Right, and he wrote this down. Moses probably wrote this in his later years, too. Um, yeah. You know, after, after they left Egypt <coughs> and all. So he was 80 years old or older, so he had spent years and years and years looking reading those right. and he is keeping but he is just like the New Testament refers to him as educated all the ways of the Egyptians and all he was in fact he would have been the only Israelite that I'd come up with that had any education mm -hmm. and who could actually read and write and everything because he was brought up in the house of Pharaoh and we can see again the providence of God Moses would have <coughs> never learned to read and write and, and, and learn how to handle history and do all the things that was going to be required of him had he not been brought up and given that education. Uh, another thing I think is interesting too there, I believe Christians, uh, because of emphasis on the Holy Spirit through the years, have not put the proper emphasis on the importance of education. And, and they just, it's just like, well, it don't matter if you got any education or not. You know, God calls, you know, whoever, just like one lady was telling me over not too long back, you know, uh, that God called her husband. It didn't matter about his education or whether he read or write or anything like that. But when you look at the Bible, really, the, the people who did the most writing were very well educa educated. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, John were fishermen. 
And they had, you know, it's when you read the two letters of Peter, when you read his speeches in Acts, it's obvious that he's operating with a limited education. I mean, you know, his vocabulary, his method of speech, and everything. I don't believe it's any accident that Paul wrote about half the New Testament in Luke. That although Luke only wrote two letters, his material almost equals the 13 of Paul. But when you say Luke and Paul, you are saying primarily most of the New Testament. And, and he left it to Paul to completely explain the Christian system. But when you go back to the Old Testament, uh, the most educated of all the prophets was Isaiah. Well, he's also the longest and, and writes, you know, more than any one of the others. And uh, Daniel, very well educated and educated among the, the Babylonians also. But uh, I think when we look, we see that the people that actually did the writing were educated people and were involved involved in, in those kind of skills and everything. They didn't just do it in some mystical way. Today, uh, we're almost suspicious uh, many times in Christendom of anybody that has uh, education and not even stopping to, to consider that you wouldn't even have the Bible in the English language if it were not for those scholars that were fluent in Greek and Hebrew and, and all of us benefit tremendously from the archaeologists and the historians and the people like Adam Clark and all that have spent their lives in, in study of that material. I, I, I saw that uh, the other day. Did you see that on 48 hours? Oh, yeah. Did you see that by any chance, 48 hours? They did it on TV Evangelist. And it was really started. It just uh, makes Christianity look pretty bad. If I watched that and all I knew about Christianity was what I saw there, I'd be laughing and saying anybody ought to be able to see through that kind of thing. But I mean, it went into Jim and Tammy and these other faith healers and it showed their lifestyle and all the money and the emphasis that they put on the collection and everything like that. But then they also, I've got the tape, by the way, they <coughs> did something very interesting. They attended a faith healing. And, of course, these people were fainting, and they touch them in the head and tell the cancer to come out of them and put a perfect heart in their child and everything like that. So they had an agreement with some of these people in advance that after they went there and got healed, that they would go to a doctor of CBS's choosing and allow them to be checked afterwards. And so like this one lady, her child has a bad heart and he's going to have to undergo open heart surgery. And so she got touched on the forehead and she just fainted over and fell on the floor. And of course, they always had somebody ready to grab them as they go, go to the floor. And then he had the child and she got up and they rejoiced and said, how are you leaving and everything like that. And the baby was healed, you know. And this lady healer is just going right there, healing right and left, you know. Well, then... When they went the next day to get the baby examined, they found out they showed the picture of the heart. You know, they actually showed the picture of the heart and the equipment they were using. And the mother acknowledged that, the, first of all, the doctor said that it was, they had the doctor that she had initially went to, and then CBS's doctor. And both of them agreed that was the same picture that they had the day before. The child still needed an operation. And then the lady acknowledged that, and then she said she was disappointed, but she still believed. That's what she wasn't disturbed or aggravated or anything like that, but she was she was disappointed, but said she's still believed. And then they took some other, one other lady, she uh, had back problems, and I forget what it was, one leg was shorter and longer than the other one, and she was healed. Well, then they sought her out, and she admitted she still wasn't quite right, you know, still had the problems. But that night, all of these people gave testimony that they were healed. They all gave testimony, and then when they follow up on them, 
there was nothing there, you know, that could verify. Well, see, what bothers me is that people that are not studied in the Bible look at that, and they put the miracles you read in the Bible in the same category with, you know, that kind of thing. Well, what happens in a lot of those cases, too, is uh, it's something that's not been proved, like you don't have a picture of a heart or something that, so that afterwards there's no proof that there was anything wrong to begin with or um, it wasn't a physical thing that you can really see. Right. You have had a lot of cases where, the you know, the, the in the churches we've been to, um, say a woman found a, breast, a lump in her breast. Well, she's not had it diagnosed as cancerous. So they pray for her and she goes and it's not cancerous. Well, right. there was no proof it was to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. But that was a miracle that it wasn't. Because yeah. cancer would be an easy thing to prove because until you until you tell a biopsy, all you know is you've got a tumor. Right. And so it'd be a very easy thing for somebody to get a in fact they asked this doctor in all his practice, both doctors, did they ever know of a single solitary incident where somebody had an organic problem and then as a result of of their faith in, in something like this, that that organic problem is healed, and he said no, not in any not in any case that he was ever familiar with, did somebody have something that was actually organic, and then through subjectiveness, it was done away with. You know, it was healed. He said he didn't know a single case of it. 